0: Uh, Luckily, that video has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, okay? Um, What that has to do with, you know, I told Pastor Conrad, I said, um, by the way, the scene in the movie is Jerry Lee Lewis was not happy that he was asked to open for somebody, and so he literally set the piano on fire and said, your turn, (laughs) you know, and the guy's like, thanks, man. Um, And I told Pastor Conrad, I said, you know, the only advantage that I have when I preach is that I go for a lot less than you do. (laughs) And I said, then last week, you go for 20 minutes. I said, thanks, Jerry Lee Lewis. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> and so that, that's why that video was there, because he... Hey, I'm not promising 20 minutes, but I'll do my best, okay? But he did take away my one advantage, which is short. <laughs> well, greetings, beloved. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we'll be looking at the book of Acts, if you've got your own copy of the scripture. Uh, we'll be looking at Acts 17, uh, 22 through 34 today. And in the form of introduction, um, th- there's a gentleman that's a professor at Harvard uh, in the Divinity Department, named Harney Cox, and he writes that we now live in a post-Christian America. The Judeo-Christian ethic no longer guides our social institutions. One more time. We now live in a post-Christian America. The Judeo-Christian ethic no longer guides our social institutions. And while I'm not 100% in agreement with Dr. Cox, because I believe that there are elements of the Christian ethic that undergird society and they're intertwined into society that are not easy to remove. So I don't know, I agree with him 100% on that. But what I 100% agree with him with is this, is that we live in a culture that's getting increasingly hostile to the Christian message of the gospel. I mean, that's absolutely true. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who you may recognize the name, um, he was in a concentration camp um, in Germany and ended up suffering and, and dying for his faith. He wrote that we are living in a fallen and falling world. That not only is it a fallen world, but it's continuously falling in one sense. And I think we can see that in our culture, right? Um, you know, we really need to consider because of that, you know, what does it look like to share our faith in this increasingly hostile culture? Uh, and that's the why I picked the text that we are looking at today. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting in my short lifetime, you know, I'm 44 years old. Uh, when I remember when I was younger, there was kind of these veiled threats that being a Christian could be costly, particularly in America. And I called them veiled threats because it was all of our friends, right? We all go to church together. There was no consequences, right? It was, we read about other people in other lands that were facing serious difficulties for their faith. But really, in the American experience, there was nothing, But for the first time in my lifetime, at least, the cost of following Christ in America is beginning to rise, isn't it? You see the waters where actually those veiled threats of persecution are actually taking shape now and may actually be costly for us. So um, the text we're going to look at, I find it to be one of the most profound texts in Acts because oftentimes what we read is Paul goes into a community. He normally goes into the synagogue, right? He shares, but we don't get what he shared right? But the next thing we see is he's, <laughs> you're out of here, man. And, and, and so what today's text is, is we get a little bit of the inner dialogue of why he gets removed from places, his rationale, how he argues for the faith, right? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I think it'll be helpful to see how Paul engages a hostile culture with the gospel. Uh, if you're able to, uh, in order to honor God's word, we're going to stand and read it if that's okay. Thank you. I appreciate you being willing to do that. These will be the most important words you hear this morning, okay? (laughs) So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way towards him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. So Paul went out from the midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus the Arpophagate, sorry, I'm from Kentucky, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray. Practice that word a lot, by the way, and I didn't do it right. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, As we dedicate ourselves to your word, Lord, uh, the preparation's been done, but this is worth nothing without your spirit. And so, Lord, today, come and wrestle with people's hearts. God, use your word today uh, to change lives. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said, amen. amen, beloved. Feel free to grab a seat. We'll go back and look at this kind of section by section now. Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. You know, the first thing I see in this text is that Paul cares for the people. And and how do I see this? I see it because what he's done is he's taken his time and he's looked around the society, right? He's invested in them. Uh, He's obviously read some things. He says of them, he says, I perceive that in every way you're religious. And this is kind of a unique comment if you look at the original language. Uh, he could also be calling them simply superstitious, right? He's like, basically what I can tell from you is that you have some type of level of respect for the divine, you know, the things above, right? Uh, maybe you're a little suspicious. Maybe you're fearful of making sure you cover all the bases on religion. But he says, I do observe that you do care about things that are bigger than yourself. Um, and, and I want to start here real quickly. He says that they're religious. There's a big difference between being religious And being a Christian. And in our culture, we need to observe this. And I think the key really is verse 23, right? They had this altar to the unknown God. And the difference between being religious and being a Christian is what Paul says. What you are suspicious about or religious about, I come to proclaim to you who he is. You see the difference there? You know, we live in a culture now where if I came up here today, let's say you're all college students. You all look young, I'll say that, right? (laughs) That's a compliment, come on. (laughs) And I go, my class today, my name is Aaron Clark, and I'm a seeker of the truth. Oh, man. But then if I chase that with, and I found it in Jesus Christ, the college class would turn different, right? You guys know that. That's the difference between being religious and being a Christian. See, the Athenians, a lot like our culture too, by the way, are, are, they're religious people. Uh, you know, you can see that in their actions, right? They had created an altar to the unknown god. Uh, this is Agnostus Theos uh, in the, the, the Greek culture. And kind of the story on this unknown altar is uh, Epimenides, uh, years, uh, about probably four or five hundred years before this, uh, there was a plague in Athens. And they were trying to get this plague to stop. I mean, people are dying, livestock's dying. And so they sacrifice to all the altars and it doesn't work. So he builds one called to the unknown God. And then all of a sudden this plague stopped. And so think about this. For, you know, 500 years maybe, they've been worshiping at this altar of the unknown God. And what I want you to observe by this is that Paul really has taken some time to get to know the culture, hasn't he? You know, He quotes uh, Epimenides, Uh, actually he quotes him not in the letter that we're reading today, he quotes another poet of Athens uh, in our letter, but he actually quotes him in Titus 1. Anybody know what he says uh, that he quotes from saying? It's kind of a weird passage. He says, you Cretans, it is true what your writer says, that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Uh, And that's literally a quote from Athenian literature. Uh, So what Paul's done is he's taken his time. He's read Greek literature. He understands. He's walked around the city. He's taken his time and understood the culture that he's in. And that's the first point, if you've got your note outline uh, that was maybe handed to you. The first point is this, that if we're going to do evangelism in a hostile culture, we need to learn the culture. Paul has done that in these people. we we'll continue on now in Acts 17, uh, picking up at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live off all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are, we, for we are indeed His offsprings. You know, we see about the Athenians that if we take the word God and not capitalize it. They're very interested in gods, right? They have I forgot how many altars that there are around the city, but it, it's an incredible amount. And so they, they are interested in this kind of gods thing. They uh, have gods for weather, lowercase g, right? Gods for fertility, for nature. And, and, and see, here's what Paul's doing. He's basically appealing to common understanding, right? That, that's point two here, by the way, uh, that We need to build a common understanding. And that's what he's doing in our text. You can see that he's pointing out that even your own poets say that we are God's offspring. So there's some common understanding. Uh, They believe that the gods, lower G, controlled all the elements of their life. And that's why Paul says, like in verse 26 uh, on the screen, if you can read that, uh, that God has allotted periods of times and boundaries for their dwellings. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. So as Paul is appealing to kind of these basic understandings of of, of life in the Athenian culture that they would have agreed upon, he's doing that with a correction. And let me explain this correction. See, you think about their life. They would bring in sacrifices to try to make sure the gods didn't get angry, right? Right? Because if God's got angry, your wife would have a miscarriage or, you know, it's almost like this yin-yang, right? Trying to keep the balance type of thing. And and, and if you didn't do the right sacrifices, that God would strike them or or cause issues within their family. And so they're very suspicious, right? They're trying to make sure to keep everything balanced. They're religious people. But what Paul does is he takes a common understanding that God's in charge of all things. And he corrects them. And says that the God, the true God, the capital G, is using his power to position you so that you can know him. You see the difference? There, because of their faith, they're scared of God. They are trying just to do whatever they can to please him. That's also like a fundamentalist Christian, right? How do I follow the rules to make sure God doesn't get upset? It's not who God is. It's not who he is. He's vastly different. He's far more kind and loving. And so what Paul's doing is he's appealed to a common understanding that God's in charge of all things, but he's correcting their misunderstanding of the character of who God is. Um, I saw this quote from J.I. Packer. I thought it was great. To know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. You see the difference? That's the difference between a religious person and a Christian. See, for them, the concept of God left them in fear, right? But for Paul, he's going, wait a minute. God's in charge of all things. He's not minimalizing God's sovereignty. But what he's saying is that he's using that sovereignty for your benefit and your good. You know, I was thinking about it as I was reading this passage, we really got to understand our lives are not a random series of events. It's not the, who God is, right? We don't see that God presented in the Scripture. You think about it, your family background, all the things you've went through, even the painful experiences, all function to prepare your hearts to meet the living God. You think about this for, I was thinking about this, okay? Um, raise your hand if you were born in Geneva. Way up high. Not like we were doing in the song. I have, there we go, come on, raise them up high. Wow, is this less than probably one percent? Are you guys just raising your hands like you do, and I raise up my hand? The song. <laughs> All right. If you were loud, loud and proud, if you're a Genevan, wow. So you think about this, okay? Who thinks they moved here from the farthest location away? Shout it out, Maine. Maine. That's a pretty good choice. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody further than that? Anybody overseas? I was born in Peru, Indiana. um, Pretty far up there at that Air Force base. And and so you just think about it. Just think about that. So it's like maybe 1% of us were born in Geneva. For you, God had a pretty easy job getting you here, okay? Like, wasn't that hard? He kind of woke you up and said, come on down the road. Uh, but, But for the rest of us, I mean, it took remarkable things to get us all into this room together today, right? I mean, and what you need to understand is that that's the kindness of God. Think about this for a second. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 24. Our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and he rules over the kingdoms. Psalm 103. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deep. Psalm 135. He does as He pleases. And His pleasure today was to bring us all together into one room to be able to hear about Christ. Amen. His pleasure for the Athenians were to bring their intellectuals, the most influential people, into one place, the Areopagus, and to be able to hear the gospel. And that's God's kindness. And while you think about how incredibly hard it would be to do that, to work things in angles, to get like somebody like me from Kentucky to Chicago to Florida. I mean, that's incredible, right? Moving hearts, changing directions, doing all those things to get us all in the same place. What maybe is more profound is what Jesus said. This great, mighty, and high God said this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my father who is in heaven. You think about this. Those with great power in our culture use it to dominate, right? The one who has all power says, are you not worth more than sparrows? He's loving. He's kind, right? He's extended grace. One of his graces is that you had your boundaries of your life allotted to the point where he wanted to be able to have you hear the gospel and to be able to respond to that. And he says clearly that don't deny me before men, or I'll deny you before the Father. Strong passage. See, Paul knows that there are some common understandings about God, but he doesn't want to leave them there. He wants them to know the true God. And until our understandings of God conform to the Scripture, we do not know the true God as he has presented himself, right? And so that's what Paul's doing. And we'll see this kind of in the next section of Scriptures, that he's going to take what are common understandings, and he's going to correct the ones that are wrong and the false beliefs about God based upon Scripture. So we'll see that in the text. Let's march forward. Acts 17, 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. See, after appealing to the common understandings, what Paul does next is point number three is correct false beliefs about God. Okay? And I want you to follow his argument, okay? This is really quite a clever argument that he makes for the people. See, you would agree that we're God's offspring. That's what Paul's first kind of statement is, right? We said, well, follow with me for a second. How could we be his offspring, yet we are also, according to your logic in this Athenian culture, creating God with our own hands and making idols? See, there's a logical inconsistency there, right? Paul's pointing out that your kind of cultural narrative, kind of the agreed-upon set of views within the culture, are inconsistent. See, you can't have... A mighty God that's also created by felled humans, right? With our hands. And what Paul's doing is he's observed the culture and he's looking for gaps, right? That just doesn't make any sense. And what he's able to do is to shove the truth of Christ through those holes, right? And that's what he's doing. He sees this inconsistency that a God who is mighty is made out of earthly images like gold or silver. That doesn't sound so mighty, does it? Yeah. Yeah. As I was thinking about this and meditating on this as I was preparing this week, you know, we have some logical inconsistencies in our day too, right? Um, Let me kind of walk through some of these, okay? Um, How about this one? We come from monkeys, but we also have great self-worth and value. See, you can't have both of those, right? We're either an ecological accident, byproduct of oops, right? Or you have great self-value. You can't grab onto both of those, but our culture tries to, right? How about this one? You can't scream out Black Lives Matter while also supporting, on the other side, abortion that slaughters black babies in disproportionate numbers. See, that's a logical inconsistency, but our culture tries to hold onto both of those, right? How about this one? This one's always a fun one. I like this one. After every tragedy, what do people say? You're in our... Yeah. God was people. You're in our thoughts and prayers. I'm not sure I want to be in your thoughts and prayers, right? <laughs> who, who, who are you praying to? Um, you know, the God of Athens, the unknown God? Maybe the God of Athens, Georgia? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, I saw Pastor Conroe was at the Georgia football game last night, by the way. That, that's the true altar to the unknown God. <laughs> Yo, here's another logical inconsistency, okay? How about this one? The California legislator, I read a secular article, so not a Christian article. uh, They're moving to ban Skittles. Now listen, I know that Skittles will probably kill you, and you know how I know that? Because I enjoy them. (laughs) I've learned in life, everything I enjoy probably kills me, you know. Um, But the article was pointing out that there's a real weird sense of justice here. Because you're allowing people to ramsack stores, yet you're preoccupied with Skittles? How about this one? This is, uh, I call him a modern day Paul. Okay, I've got a video for you. And you've got to listen quick uh, because it's a real quick video. But I think you'll enjoy this. You think it's to One more time for those who are uh, slow of listening. Okay, you ready? It's okay to transition children. It's gold, right? Uh, Paul's, Paul, what this person's doing, uh, is pointing out that you're perfectly okay with a child taking a knife to their anatomy. But you think the ideal of changing their spiritual views is a big deal? That's a logical inconsistency, isn't it? Uh, we'll have a 10-year-old girl here in a little bit uh, coming up into the water to make a profession of faith before you. I promise you, children are more than capable of transitioning to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> um, one last example of this uh, kind of cultural inconsistency that I want to point out is um, this kind of narrative within our culture that just by kind of making a proclamation that you've changed your gender from one to the other creates this kind of equality, Right? Um, And and that's no more better on display than in female athletics, right? You'll look up at a uh, a winner's platform and you got three people stand up there and one of them is not like the rest, right? You guys ever sung that song? Um, And and I I thought this was interesting. Uh, I was reading a story about this and uh, on X, which is the former Twitter, uh, Bruce, a.k.a. Caitlyn Jenner, wrote up this. As somewhat of a track star myself, And as a trans person, this is wrong. Help me push back. Well, what is he writing about? He was writing about a student that finished last in the 1600 meters for dudes, but then went over and competed in the girls' side of it and finished second and kicked another student out of of state competition. So obviously, Bruce Jenner is not a Christian. But he's going, help me. This is ridiculous. Man. They see the logical inconsistency. So here's kind of my point on all this, okay? There's inconsistencies in our culture, right? They're trying to hold two things that are incompatible. And see, if we as Christians observe these difficulties and we just use them to kind of bash our liberal friends, you've done nothing of any good. I mean, it's fun, right? I mean, hey, winning an argument, kind of stinging somebody is kind of fun, right? But if you just do that, you've missed an incredible opportunity, Paul would say. This is his moment where you can point out that there's inconsistency here to put Christ into that. And I've kind of went through these things, okay? Follow with me for a second. There's observable fairness issues between male and female athletes when somebody transitions, we can clearly see that simply because you proclaim the opposite gender, it does not render equality, right? And so, why is that? Our cultures even seeing that. And our response as Christian is this, that God made them male and female. That's right. That they are distinct. That there are biological differences between you because God made you. That's right. Amen. Okay? I wrote down here, um, and I, I titled this intentionally, that there's a false prosperity gospel of the trans movement. Now, that's a lot of words, okay? The prosperity movement in the Christian, which is her- heresy, is that basically you come to Christ and everything will go well for you. Right? You'll, your dog will have extra babies. I don't know, whatever else. Whatever they say. That, you, know, you give me a little bit, God will take care of you and give you plentiful. Well, there's also a false prosperity gospel in the trans movement. And it's this, that if you get gender-affirming treatment that the quality of life will improve. And it's a false prosperity gospel. It is a false gospel. All you have to do is do a little bit of research. People who receive gender-affirming treatment, uh, that would be medications, maybe reassignment surgeries, there's zero improvement after a period of time in, in disposition. Zero. In fact, I read a pretty high-end article this week that said the ideal of suicide idealizations after they've received gender-affirming treatment is higher. How would you like your doctor coming to you and say, you need a surgery that will absolutely not help you but probably will hurt you? See? Zero improvements, more dangerous position than you were at before. And our answer is this. Listen. Emotionally, physically, but ultimately spiritual pain can only be healed by Christ. He will come in and he will bind up those wounds that are hurtful. Not creating more wounds in your body, right? When people say, my life should matter more, I should should matter, right? Our answer is this, yes, you are important because God created you in his image. You see what I'm doing here? I'm taking what the culture, there's tensions in the culture that they're observing, and I'm putting Christ right in the middle of it because he is the creator of all this, right? How about this one? When the secular writer writes that uh, we're preoccupied with Skittles and disproportionately focused on criminal theft, you know what we say? Justice is a good thing. Maybe. Why do you think that inside you're crying out that this is not just? It's because the God who made you created you with a sense of justice. And that's both a good and a terrible thing. Because all of us have sinned against this God that will one day also balance our accounts, right? You see what I've done here? With just a minimal amount of thoughtfulness and logic, we can look for these inconsistencies in the culture as opportunities to show Christ. Please don't just use them to bash people. That's the last thing we want to do, right? I mean, we're the only people on the planet that can look at somebody who has a totally different view, disagree with them and love them fully at the same time. It's our calling, right? But these inconsistencies leave enough space to correct those with true beliefs about God, right? And I would plead with you for a second. Hear me out, okay? This is not... Just something for the professionals to do. This is evangelism, right? Engaging the culture with the gospel. And who's responsible for evangelism? Okay, about the same amount of hands that raised their hand a while ago. Who's responsible for evangelism? All right, good. I assume the hands that were down are not Christians yet. But today's your day, right? (laughs) You guys help me out, man. I read this week, do you want to know the difference between an atheist and an American evangelical Christian on evangelism. The atheist is honest about not following the teachings of Jesus. Right. Ooh, that one stings, sting, hey? See, Paul's correcting several things here, and he's looking for places to shove the gospel in, because the gospel's in every story. Amen? Amen? Paul corrects their inconsistency also of having an idol to an unknown God, that that would be appropriate. You see that in verse 30, right? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day of judgment in head. And that's what Paul really understood about his kind of existence as a person. Uh, in fact, he writes in Colossians 1, and I'll read just the end of this, that he was given a stewardship to make the word of God fully known. The hidden mystery of ages and past are now being revealed, right? And so Paul, when he comes into this, he basically understands that I'm coming into your presence by God's grace, right? Which for him, it was being kicked out of Thessalonica and then going down to Berea and then having the people from Thessalonica come and kick him out of Berea. And he ends up in Athens to share the gospel. And he says, listen, there were times that you were ignorant to the truth of the gospel. Today, you can no longer claim that, right? He's coming to plead with them about the gospel and to show them the beauty of Christ. He says that God now commands people everywhere to repent because the time of ignorance he's overlooking. You know, that sound, man, it should hit the ear in a special way. I think the first time I hear that is on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the same thing, right? Times of ignorance, God overlooked. So we get that from Jesus Christ. Uh, We also see it in Acts, different men, same message. Peter, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is beautiful, by the way. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You hear it there? Man, you crucified this Christ, but he's been made Lord over all. And when they heard that, Message that they now need to repent. I mean, turn from your sins and believe. It says they were cut to the heart. And man, that's my prayer today is that some of you, as you're hearing this about Christ dying for your sins, that you're cut to the heart. Um, And you begin to respond to that message today through repentance and belief. Same thing as he said. Same thing we hear again in Acts 3, one chapter over. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers particularly speaking of crucifying Christ. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back from your sins that they may be blotted out. Same message, different speaker, right? Amen. In our text we see the time of ignorance God has overlooked, right? So here's what God commands now. He commands people to turn from their sins for judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And the assurance that this judgment is coming is because Christ, who was taken and put upon a cross for our sins, was brutalized. But more important than the human elements of that, we hear Him say profound things like, My Father, why have you forsaken me? I mean, the wrath for humanity's sin placed upon Him. You think about this. But then what happens after they take him and stick him outside the camp in a a grave? Three days later, what happens? It's assured. It's assured because of what's done with Christ. We stand on solid foundation today. Amen. This is the beauty of the gospel. Point number four is this. Share clearly the gospel and the hope it provides. And here's their response. You ready? Ready? Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the mist, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So point five is this. We need to trust God with the results. Amen. Right? That, that's what we see here. Uh, it's interesting. Some mocked, Right? Some repented. What's the difference? Huh? I'm okay. Bring it, bring it. What's the difference? Who's God working in, right? I mean, it's God that's working, right? And there's times that when you share the gospel to a hostile culture, you're Noah. Man, you preach for year upon year. I think of Dennis Best, right? Man, years sitting in a tribe. Trying to present the gospel as clear as you can. Man, probably going back home and going, did I do it right? Did I do it right? I'm not sure. Let me try again, you know. And then, sometimes, you're like Peter, right? And the Lord opens the floodgates. And people repent and believe, right? Like Dennis had at the later part of his life. But more than likely, you know who you're going to be like? Paul and Jesus. Jesus. Paul has a couple people that make a response. Jesus had a few people standing at his cross, right? You'll have a few people that were deeply impacted by the message of the gospel in your life. But here's what I would tell you. Remain faithful. Trust God with the results, right? Do your job. Try your best to understand the culture, to apply the principles of Christianity to the situations that you're in so that you can inject Christ into the situation, Right? But but at the end of the night, we trust God with the results. I love what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. You guys may remember this from Pastor Conrad's teaching. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Who who gives the growth? God. God. Yeah. So neither he who plants nor he whose waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Amen. Amen. That's true. And so, like, kind of wrapping up today, um, so many responses that you could have. One is that uh, that quote, Aaron, you said about evangelism and atheists hit me uh, right between the eyes. I don't share my faith. I've not even thought about it. Well, that's in rebellion, right? And today that would say be repented of, right? I would caution you to do that today. Uh, you can do that. Sometimes it's very good to do a formal repentance, coming forth and praying. I would say the other side of this is that maybe you've been cut to the heart this morning by the gospel. You've never thought about the fact that your sins cost Christ. Uh, Mahalia is going to be tes- going to give a testimony here in a few moments of her faith. You know what her faith started with? Last week, I mean, God's been doing, working in her life for a long time. I've been able to see that. But last week, you know, she's let the cup pass from her, you know, since she was a baby. She's been in church, right? Seen that cup, no big deal, Right. Last week, she came to me and asked me like three times, hey, Dad, I want to take that cup. I'm like, you just want the fancy cup, right? Is that what it is? No. No, Dad, I really feel like I need to put that in my hand. I said, man, why would you want to put that in your faith? That, why would you want put that in your hand? That's just for a Christian. And, and all of a sudden, she started to well up. And she was holding it in her hand, and she said, this was for my sins. I've never seen somebody get saved holding the Lord's Supper cup. You know, But she began to weep and repented of her sins. And then a few seconds later was able to drink the cup and be thankful for it. You know, that's the beauty of the gospel, right? And you may have walked in here today not thinking about Christ at all. But man, as we've been talking about this repentance, and you've looked at your own life, and you're holding to some of these illogical things now, the Lord stripped those off, and he's shown you today the beauty of Christ. And that you need to repent and believe. There's a opportunity to do that today, right? We got John right here, Raymond. Uh, We're going to be singing a song. If you want to come up and grab one of them and talk to them, please do that, okay? Afterwards, okay? There's no formality to this. If you want to come afterwards, come afterwards. We will sit here with Scripture and explain the things of Christ until 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Not even think twice about it because we love you that way. Right? Yes, men? John said, maybe not. Maybe I want to go to lunch. I'm not sure how to (laughs) But that's the invitation today, right? And then the other things are, you know, whatever else the Lord did in your heart today. If you need to make a public profession, if you need to come down and pray about something, the invitation's open today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll stand up. Father, thank you so much for this morning, uh, for your grace and your goodness, Lord. Um, What a privilege it is to talk about the things of Christ. Lord, today we ask that you move hearts. Lord, if it's two, if it's none, Lord, we know you've done a work today in hearts uh, for your glory and for your honor. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. All God's people said. Amen. 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 The response-